you know, there's this campaign among conservative Christian leaders that progressive Christians are to blame for people leaving the church, uh, inviting people to deconstruct their faith and abandon the church. And it's like they all got together to figure out what deflection argument was was going to, you know, to work for them instead of looking at the fact that most people are actually deconstructing and leaving white male toxic patriarchy, uh, not leaving a deeper spiritual life. In the book, you write about the process of unboxing God as something uncomfortable and may lead you to leaving the church, realizing, I love as you wrote, that God left the building as well. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is John Pavlovitz. He is a pastor, writer, and activist. He's written several books, including Stuff That Needs to Be Said and A Bigger Table. John, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much, Andy. So good to be with you today. Now, um, I know you've been asked this a thousand times over the last several months, but but how are you? You know, For those that, that don't know, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor this summer and had surgery at, at the end of September to remove it. 
I am doing really well. Um, you know, we, we found out about the tumor, I guess, in late August. Um, and by October 1st, I was in surgery. And we're now about 10 weeks out as we record this. And physically, I'm feeling really well. Um, you know, there have been some bumps in the road, but as most of this recovery kind of can be, um, but right now, just feeling really fortunate and, um, you know, we're waiting on some tests to see what our next steps are, if we need to take next steps. But, um, you know, throughout this, that the story of this for me has been, we decided real early on to invite my readers and followers into this journey, because that's just the way I've done. What I've done is just, you know, shared in real time what life is like and, uh, people have been just so wonderful and it's you've seen the reciprocal nature of virtual community which has been a really big part of this for me yeah for a person who grew up in the raleigh area you also can't find any better medical treatment in that area whether it's duke or, or carolina so you know you have some of the best in the country right there to take take care of you and i guess dig into your brain as most people aren't able to say in their lives yeah, that's right. Yes, they've seen into me. And and it is, I'm, we are so fortunate to be in this area, you know, having to drive 35 minutes as opposed to flying around the country. I mean, you just, you can't overstate how, how much that's helped in the, in the journey for us to be close to home and family. And so, uh, yeah. So now we're just, uh, just experiencing all this richness of that kind of experience that changes everything. By the way, if you didn't know, you have some you have some great friends. I was uh, sitting at a leadership summit in New York City with Frank Schaefer, who was supposed to be doing a talk that night about his new book, but instead he spent the entire 45-minute talk pontificating on your new book um, on the day you were having surgery. Uh, gosh, I know I, I got to see that uh, maybe a day or two later in the hospital, and it's just one of those moments that you you can't fathom the that this is your life that you're watching unfold and that someone that you admire as much as frank would be you know so generous with his time and his platform and it was just one another one of those moments where you it's it's a surreal experience to be a part of and just really beautiful um so let's let's talk about this new book um if god is love don't be a jerk um i guess the most pressing question is are you trying to compete for the most obvious correlation between book title and content in the history of the written word? <laughs> yeah, well, that's been kind of the goal is to figure out how to say, you know, the, the blog is one thing, Andy, writing every day and having, you know, an 800 word piece and having an arc of that piece and a tone to that piece, and then trying to put together a book that carries that same spirit um, has always been a challenge uh, since I started this. And this was a concerted effort every day to say, okay, how can I bring the same sensibility and the same delivery to a book? And so it's been, a, it was a challenge, but it was really, I feel so pleased with just the, the, uh, I guess the combination of earnestness and, um, you know, um, sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> So what, what gives you the impression that Jesus followers have a legacy of being a jerk? Are there uh, any recent events that you can point to to justify such a notion? It's funny. Someone said, hey, John, why didn't you just write a book that says, if God is love, love people? And I said, well, I think 
looking around at the world, my, my aspirations for humanity got really pedestrian and for Christians. And I said, well, if I can't convince people to fully love others, let me start with just not doing harm. And really, that's been the story of, of looking around, especially being an American Christian, and seeing the church being often, or people who profess to follow Jesus, be the source of so much exclusion and division and cruelty. And that the last couple of years, especially, it, it doesn't seem like it's just a disagreement theologically or a misalignment politically, but it's actually a... A, a malice that I can't reconcile with a follower of Jesus. And so the, the not be a jerk part is really speaks to all of us. What are my motives? You know, the, the, that comes from what is my intention uh, as I get up every day and try to, you know, live out my convictions. You know, as one of our, you know, our theological constructs, as I think about it, they're the the results of uh, a lot of ingredients, our upbringing, our social context, our, our temperament, our cognition, our religious tradition, life events, and so much more. Um, but we really do see life and transcendence and, and God differently. And yet there seems to be this prevailing theological construct among American evangelicals over who God is uh, what God wants, what God hates, and what God, you know, who God wants you to vote for. And, and for many non-evangelicals, all these seem emphatically hate-centric, uh, bigoted, and, and morally bankrupt. Um, you know, as, as you kind of look at this process of asking people to, to, to consider, you know, their actual construct and how they develop their understanding of God, like what, what seems to be at the root of this prevailing thought, especially among evangelicals uh, in the South, has been your experience? Well, fear is such a motivating factor in our lives in general. I think we all live out of the place of whatever it is that we fear, and that tends to inform our theology and our politics. And what I see in the worst of organized religion is that it presses into those places of fear, and it leverages um, those phobias and the stereotypes that we have. And, and what I see in the American evangelical church is a faith that sort of subsists on an adversary, that it needs an, an enemy for its, you know, its rank and file to push back against or to feel like they're in war with. And it's a battle posture that I just don't think is conducive to empathy which is the, really the whole struggle of the book is, can I have an expression of faith that is born out of compassion rather than contempt and rather than fear? And because no one is at their best when they're terrified. And I think I see a lot of Christians who, even though they have this, this caregiver Jesus that they're devoted to, and they have this massive God who they say is defined by love, and yet their lives are, are expressing something that's antithetical to that. So, you know, there's this campaign among conservative Christian leaders that progressive Christians are to blame for people leaving the church, uh, inviting people to deconstruct their faith and abandon the church. And it's like they all got together to figure out what deflection argument was, was going to, you know, to work for them instead of looking at the fact that most people are actually deconstructing and leaving white male toxic patriarchy, uh, not leaving a deeper spiritual life. 
In the book, you write about the process of unboxing God as something uncomfortable and may lead you to leaving the church, realizing, I love as you wrote, that God left the building as well. Uh, take us a little deeper there. This is probably, I'm in my 25th year of, of what's that began with local church ministry. And as I moved deeper into ministry and the churches got larger and I was exposed to more people, I, you, I began to see that I was a part of something that actually seemed to be um, in opposition to the gospel in so many ways that the churches had become um, places to gather to just reaffirm our, our biases. And when I started to ask questions about my theology or what the church was teaching or what we were perpetuating as a largely white church in the South in America, you know, when I asked those questions, that's when the pushback came. That's when the most kind of fierce, passionate objections started to rise up. And it told me that so many Christians have lived in a certain story for so long that they can't even recognize uh, the inconsistencies in that story or the tensions there. And I, I constantly am just asking people to examine as, as believers, the story that they tell themselves about who they are, about who other people are, what is the narrative that plays in your head about the character of God. And you begin to ask those questions and then you realize that informs everything that I either say I believe or the way I live, which actually shows what I believe. The numbers don't lie. Um, mainline denominations are on a rapid decline over the last two decades. And there appears to be a, a fast lane off-ramp post-2016 election, in which many that were hanging on for hope for change within the American evangelical movement only to have that dashed uh, with the unholy marriage of Trumpianism. So what do you think is on the other side of all this, especially for those that are searching for a deeper, more meaningful, intrinsically connected spirituality about what they believe to be just and fair and equitable? You know, doing this work in a largely now virtual capacity, Andy, I was fortunate enough to, we reached a milestone of 100,000 views on the blog. And um, I'm sorry, 100 million views on the blog, which just boggles my mind. And but what that tells me, it's not about validation of my writing. It is um, confirmation that there is this vast multitude of people who are desiring to have a deeply spiritual existence, but they're not finding their place in the institutional church. And in fact, my readership goes up dramatically every Sunday which tells me that even though so many people aren't being counted in those buildings, they are still, that is the, the muscle memory of their, of their souls is still that I'm seeking this thing on a Sunday. And, and I get hope because I know that there is now an expression of the people of God, which is the church that is not defined by that building. And so I know the work is still happening and I know community is still growing. It's just gonna be difficult to figure out how to measure that and how to, and, and maybe we don't even need to, but maybe we need to make sure that in all of the avenues that we exist, that we are perpetuating the values that matter to us because 
whether people are religious or non-religious who read the blog or whether they're former Christians or current Christians or you know any faith perspective, they resonate, the ideas resonate of that shared humanity that I try to make central to what I write. And that's the beautiful thing. You know, the church I think is being crafted by people who are no longer in those buildings. And it's exciting. I mean, because it cannot be um, contained. There's so much of the book that uh, that I want to unpack. And, and one of the, the critical constructs that you discuss that often prevents people from seeing the true essence of God's love is the concept of, of hell. You wrote, doesn't the existence of hell uh, seem incompatible with the character of God whose defining trait is love anyway? Take us a little deeper there. I can remember... Um you know, being, being taught that Jesus, Jesus is teaching his students about forgiveness. And he basically says, every time that you are asked for forgiveness, you have to offer that forgiveness to that person. And I look at the concept of hell, which is essentially God saying, I have reached a saturation point of my compassion for you or my forgiveness. And to the point where I'm going to write you off eternally. And it's almost as if that doctrine sets up an, a, a place where God is not even willing to live by the standards that Jesus asks his followers to live by. And when I began to think about it that way, what would a God whose love is more expansive than any human expression of love, how would that God respond to our flaws and failings? And, you know, we often use the idea of parenthood and as a, as a father, that that's a natural comparison for me. And I look at my kids and they fail all the time and they do things completely in opposition to what I uh, try to get them to do. And yet I'm relentless in my love for them. There is no point where that will be, uh, that will, there will be an expiration date on that love. And so I embrace the hope that, that God is, you know, that to a level that I can't even fathom. And so how could we be outside the, the welcome of that God? You know, there's, as I think about kind of this construct of, of hell for a lot of people, I think a lot of people, especially that grow, those that grew up in a more conservative faith tradition, the concept of heaven of hell is a critical point of understanding what this whole Jesus thing is about. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I just hear people saying, didn't he come to save people from hell by offering them a road to salvation? But, but when you examine the scriptures closely, Jesus doesn't necessarily leverage hell in this kind of way. Hell is more often than not a metaphor within a parable for the difference between those who love their neighbor and those who didn't, the rich and the poor, the, the marginalized and the oppressed. Um, when, when you look at scriptures, you know, where do you develop your concept of uh, uh, these theological concepts that you're trying to convey in the book? Well, I, you know, I look at Matthew 25, you know, and I, and I say Jesus is laying out that the expression of our belief is as important as whatever that belief is, that that it's not merely um, a theological decision. It, it is a choice to express um, something toward humanity. And so I, I lean into that and I, I remind people that the Gospels, we have these four you know, biographies of Jesus, and they're, they're vast, and, and they're filled with these beautiful stories and words. 
And if Jesus' sole purpose was to get people to escape eternal damnation, the Gospels could have been really short. It could have been just a couple of really great sermon altar calls, and that would have been it. But we see these, these beautiful stories of Jesus living. And, and I think that's, for me, a lot of people will lean into the Gospels and the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus as an after an after earth experience. And I'm seeing it as a profoundly, you know, the prayer is that the earth begins to look like heaven. And so I see it as wanting something that happens in this life that reflects our hopes for the next. And so some people are gonna lean into a faith that expresses itself in salvation. And I'm trying to see that Jesus, I'm trying to show that Jesus brought that salvation in the way he healed and fed and restored people. You know, when you deconstruct our concept of hell, in, in your mind, how does that change our view of God? Um, how does it change our view of, of our neighbor? One of the, one of the things that I, I, I'm, this phrase came into my head years and years ago, and it said, God is not out to squash you. And when, if, when, I, when I can embrace that, and I believe that God is not out to squash me or anyone else for that matter, well, then I begin to wield my beliefs differently. And I begin to live more openly toward other people. I have a more diverse group of people around me because I'm not seeing them as threats to me or as morally incompatible necessarily. I'm seeing everyone as equally flawed and yet equally beautiful. And that sounds like just poetic language, but it's really not. It, it makes you less um, terrified of diverse thought and, and um, diverse humanity. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. 
For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. As, as we talk about God is love, this comes from John's first letter. You know, what do you imagine when you think of God being defined as love? For years, I've, I've done work with middle and high school and college students and realizing that the greatest gift I could give them was here, here, I can, I can remember a story that I was, I was with a group of students in our first youth group gathering. And when I got this job at this mega church and there are hundreds of students and, and their parents were there and I'm just kind of, you know, doing my hummingbird youth pastor thing. I'm visiting everybody saying hello. And there were these two students on the periphery of the room, just standing at the edge with their arms folded. And I tried to make some conversation with them and welcome them. And they wanted nothing to do with me. And it was the kind of thing where it's just like, okay, I'm this, this, this is like not going well. So I'm going to abort this and just quietly walk away. Well, two, two days later, I got an email from the, the older of the two, which was the sister. And she said, I, I, you know, you met us, you probably don't remember us, but um, we were there, we were, we didn't want to be there, we were being forced to by our parents, uh, which is what you want as a youth pastor and people there under duress, you know, and I, and she said, we had had really bad experiences at church before, and she said, but you, you actually came and you talked to us, and she said this phrase, you made me feel visible, and I rarely feel visible, and that never left me in all these years because I think that is the gift we give people to feel seen and heard and accepted and loved. And that has got to be what the presence of God yields, that sort of exhale that says, we don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to earn anything. And if God is God, then that's where God is present. Why do you think this isn't the the prevailing theological understanding for a lot of people uh, about God, about our lives, um, church, um, our, our religious practices. I mean, it does, it does doesn't seem to be for a lot of people when they think of the Christian faith, it doesn't seem to be what they think of. Well, I think, you know, as we mentioned, fear does play a part in it, but also there's, there's a competitive nature especially to being a, a human being who lives in America, where we're we have this comparison sickness about our income levels and our families and our appearance. And so I think that bleeds over into our theology where we always wanna make sure, well, I have to be better than somebody or who is less, less good than I am. And I think we very easily weaponize the idea of God or who's in or who's out or who's moral or immoral. And, you know, I talk in the book about this idea of the doppelganger God, you know, that we all create God slightly or substantially in our own image. And we, we usually hear the voice of God as agreeing with us or ratifying our prejudices or agreeing with our politics. And that's just something we constantly have to guard against um, because the character of God is far superior to our preferences and prejudices. There's a, a quote from the book that sticks out to me. He said, uh, you can mount all the violent assaults of theological, systematic theology and dogmatic doctrine that can be louder than this voice. All the finger waving and threat throwing and pulpit pounding will likely fail to scare the hell into me. You can label me as a false prophet, a prodigal rebel, and I will rest in the reality that I'm simply an honest and stumbling disciple trying to find the truest truth and live into it. 
take us a little deeper there. The church, uh, as you know, Andy, tends to, especially a more conservative theological expression of the church, tends to prize certainty. It values that, you know, expression of of being absolutely sure of whatever the stated belief is. And yet most people are not that certain. And the more I began to express my own um, uncertainty and then invited others into it, the, the greater turbulence it created for me, but also the more authentic communities began to spring up around me. And I, I, I think people, when they um, come across maybe a question that I ask, they're threatened by the question because the question is asking them to confront an assumption and they may not wanna do that. And you and I, we've, we've, we've done some of the work to, to deconstruct some of this. And a lot of people, it's a terrifying thing to do. I, I always say most people don't have the time or energy for an existential crisis. And so they avoid it by leaning into, I'm certain. And that person who has a question is obviously dealing with some moral failing or some character flaw. And I, I always remind people, it's okay if you call me whatever you call me or you, you declare my faith to be inferior. I'm okay with that. It doesn't threaten or bother me because I couldn't change it even if I wanted to. I, I know the story that I've walked through. I know the questions that I've asked and I know the experiences that I've had. And so I don't feel the need to justify them or, or, or to earn people's approval. I just simply let them know this is the reality of my journey. And I know you have yours. You know, as I think about, you, you indicated there that, you know, the work that you've done to deconstruct um, some of your religious upbringing, certainly the work that uh, clergy who vocationally have the opportunity to do this each day, that there's so many people that, you know, well-meaning and intended people who go to work every single day, they're doing their best to take care of their families, um, and they're coming to church on Sunday, if that's uh, when their church gathers. and they just don't have the time to think about these things, to process these things in such a way. And yet the church also hasn't helped them out and giving them the tools to think critically when nuanced ideas um, or concepts that seem so foreign to them are introduced to them that people revert to that fear or that entrenchment. Um, you know, so, so what do we do? How do we as ministers equip people to think deeply, uh, to think critically uh, about their faith, and maybe, you know, not let fear uh, and entrenchment be the, the, the first response to such ideas. Well, Andy, that's such a good point, because in doing the work of being a local church pastor through much of this journey, I, I realized we were doing a disservice to our people by giving them the shorthand faith that they crave. So we were putting together these, you know, one point sermons, and we were giving them this sentence that they were going to carry through for the week. And, you know, we gave them songs and an experience for that hour or so. But rather that because that was easier, and it was quicker, we could do that during the week, but it's much messier to say, we're going to create a space where we're just going to ask some questions today and somehow give you a way to respond to those in real time or to reflect on them. So I think churches can, can do more or should do more to make that hour, if that is the only hour people are there or the lion's share of your community is present, 
what is valuable use of that time? Is it giving them a platitude? Is it giving them a production or a feeling or motivating them to some end? Or is it just to give them a place to wrestle uh, with all these deep questions? Um, because people are busy, and yet the church, when it gathers in however way that it does, should be a place where we say, okay, all of this is going on, but we're going to take some time now to linger with the discomfort that comes with asking really hard questions. The church should be the place where we are most authentic, not least authentic or partially authentic. You know, as I think about, um, you know, so many ministers listening to this, they feel the tension between their personal theological views and the churches they serve. And many know that if they get up to preach what they really believed or felt about some of the things happening in our country, especially politically, they'd find themselves packing up their offices and, and finding a new job. And so uh, instead they don't, you know, they, they cover themselves up, they hide themselves away from their congregations and who they truly are, or they do actually go and preach prophetically and find themselves, you know, looking for a new job. And then that church continues in its cycle. So, you know, on one hand, it's easy to just say, and preach prophetically, telling people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. On the other hand, it's easy to see that in being prophetic voice, especially in a congregation that's not prepared for it, they're, they're not going to receive what you say. And I've had friends that have left their churches because they don't want to hide away anymore. And then others that have chronic anxiety in their lives because they feel like they're hiding away from their congregation. Um, mm. Yeah. At, at the same time, what, what good does it do for a congregation if, if, if we don't have ministers there day after day doing the good work and difficult work of spiritual formation, even if they're not in the same theological place their congregations are. So, you know, what's the balance? What's, what's the give there? How, how do we equip our ministers to journey alongside people, especially people that don't theologically have the same views as them, but, you know, they do it in a way where I, I you know, I balance that prophetic and pastoral at the same time. What, what's been your experience? Well, yeah, that's absolutely true. And you know, my my journey was, you know, about 10 years into ministry, I'd, I'd been at this local community and I built up an equity of trust with people. I had relational capital and they I, that meant that I could nudge them to a place or I could ask a question or express a thought that maybe I couldn't have two or three years ago. And I wrote about this in a bigger table. You know, I have such a heart for ministers because I understand almost all ministers are initially motivated by a deep love for people and they want to connect them with the God who loves them. And what happens is you enter into a local community and there's no way that you can't become partially beholden to those people because you live life with them. And the danger is when you begin to soften your voice so much that, you know, really important ideas are getting left off of the platform because you're afraid of how that's going to be received. But for me, the answer was into slowly letting my congregation evolve with me. And I could, you know, because when I left the church uh, the, where I was serving to go and serve in another church, I didn't have that relational capital. I didn't have that, that, of that trust, the equity of trust that was built up. And so when I began, you know, saying the same things, it was shocking to them and jarring and to the point where, you know, I soon was released from that church because um, I was not respectful in some ways of the, that we had no time together. But I would say to ministers that are in their churches for a while, you eventually have to show people gradually who you really are 
because ultimately you want to be accepted as that is your role as a pastor, as a minister. It's to say, here is the full expression of my spirituality and let's walk together. And you can be prophetic and pastoral as long as you're being as honest as you can. And um, as you know, pastor said to me, I was getting ready to speak at his church on a Sunday morning and I'm trying to warn him about things that I'm going to say that might be bothersome to his people. I don't want to blow up everything. And he said, oh, no, please say that because I want to and I can't. And I said, well, you could. You just might end up out here with me unemployed. And so that's really where the rubber meets the road, Andy. I, a, a pastor, the pastor position, any ministry position, there is an inherent political nature to that in the fact that you have so many people to bring along with you. And that's just a challenge. Yeah. And I think that's my concern, you know, is that our world and our culture is becoming uh, increasingly more divided. You know, the sides are being drawn and, you know, you've got to come over to our team. And I think churches are doing the same. And that, that pressure that ministers feel um, to be who they are and to bring their congregations along. And yet, I think sometimes we as ministers fail to recognize that, like, our people, the people entrusted to our care, have, A, not been given the same space uh, that we have to think theologically as we do all the time. Yeah. And I think secondly, we also forget like Jesus journeyed with the disciples for three years and those idiots still didn't get it, right? right. <laughs> you know, in the end, you know, so, uh, and then we read the book of Acts and they continue to not get it right. You know, so, you know, at what point uh, do, do we need to shift the way that we approach training ministers and equipping ministers, especially from a, a more progressive uh, bent of the theological spectrum to to have that patience and that nurturing spirit to, to continue to journey alongside people. Um, and to, I think maybe the point maybe to recognize as I'm rambling on here is that oftentimes we perceive the theological attacks to be a personal attack against us, but really at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with what people are dealing with internally, mentally and spiritually and socially as they're trying to figure out the tension between maybe what you have said and what they feel or what they believe to be true that's yeah that's that's the whole thing we all have a story we tell ourselves and once there is something that that opposes that story or calls it into question well you're going to have a defense posture and it's getting past that initial defense posture and i i feel for ministers who are in churches that they're trying to help slowly move because it's almost it's much more difficult to retrofit a church to that kind of exploration than it would be to start a church or community from scratch that says, hey, we're going to be about the questions and the wrestling and we're going to be open about that. It's, it's a much greater challenge to have a church that's always been about one thing and to figure out how to change the culture so that critical thinking is welcome, that exploration is, there is space for that. Um, and, but you're right. The, when people, you know, I get some really beautiful <laughs> words in my inbox and on my comment section, and I'm, I'm never offended or angry about those because I understand where they come from. I understand that they come from people who have lived a story that is deeply important to them, that they've reached faith conclusions the same way that I have with prayer and study and life experience and all these things. And so I'm giving them something that is jarring to that and um, 
so I have to try and walk with them through some of that. Um, it's not even deconstruction. It's almost, it's demolition. It's just something sometimes has to give when I had to reckon with how my whiteness and my maleness had been such an advantage to me, especially in the church. Well, there, there, there was a confrontational idea to me and I had to grieve the things that I was part of. And then I had to make a decision to change in response. And so all these things are layers to that. You know, the, the crux of the book uh, is, is this concept, it's this call to love as God loves, you know, telling people stop being freaking jerks and just love in the way that God loves. And um, I, I love this quote from, from the book. You wrote, the way you treat other people is the only meaningful expression of your belief system anyways. It is the space where your values are fully on display. Theologians and seminary students call this orthopraxy, your actions, as opposed to your orthodoxy, your beliefs. Jesus called it the fruit of a life. Take us a little deeper there. I think, you know, Andy, once I got released into this larger world and this sort of virtual congregation that I'm a part of, I began to meet people of every walk of life, just one after another, thousands upon thousands. And the message, the pattern to what they say is often, I don't care what someone says they believe. I, I, I have an experience of them, uh, whether that's been my experience of my neighbor who says they're Christian or my, my former church. People don't, um, it's almost irrelevant what, how, you, how you state your convictions and it's far more relevant to them what they experience from your life. And which is, that's all we have. And I did so many years just wrestling with people because I wanted to have the right beliefs. And at the end of the day, I had to ask myself, well, you know, I talk about it in the book, you know, that how's your, how's my driving bumper sticker? And, you know, I want to ask people, how's my living? You know, what are you experiencing from me? Could you look at my life and retrofit or reverse engineer my belief system based on how I live, how I treat you? And that's ultimately all we have. What do you hope for your readers? I hope that, you know, I really hope that people will read this book who don't think they agree with me or don't agree with me on some of these things, because I don't necessarily, you know, I, I will argue with my former self every day. Uh, I hope that whether they're religious or not, or whether they're conservative or progressive, that they'll move from where they are to a place of greater empathy and that they'll ask some hard questions of themselves. And that's, that's enough. If they'll do that, then, then I've done my job. The book is If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. Our guest is John Pavlovitz. Keep uh, up with John by visiting his website, johnpavlovitz.com. Uh, John, you are incredibly gracious for, for making the time to have this conversation, especially all that you've been through over the last several months. Um, and thank you for your continued good work um, of calling people to discover and live into the fullness of God's love. Oh, thanks so much, Andy. I'm really uh, glad to have spent this time with you and to look forward to doing it again. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. 
For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 